Okay, you ready? You can hear me okay? Great, we're on? Perfect. Awesome. Let's go. I'm Peter Little, lead pastor at Christ Pacific Church in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. And you're listening to our Sunday Sermons podcast. To learn more about us or to subscribe to this podcast, visit us at cpchb.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, On April 12th in 1961, a Soviet cosmonaut by the name of Yuri Gagarin, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Do you know, Gagarin? Gagarin, thank you. Yuri Gagarin became the first human being to travel into space. Gagarin orbited Earth just once, and that took an astonishingly brief 89 minutes. Gagarin reached a maximum distance of 187 miles above the Earth's surface during his single orbit. Gagarin would later reflect on his 89 minutes in outer space, and he would say, I looked and I looked, but I didn't see God. Gagarin traveled 187 miles into the vast expanse of the universe. And peering into that expanse, seeing nothing but darkness, he concluded that God was not there. Now, just for a little bit of fun perspective on how far Yuri traveled, a Pluto, which may or may not be a planet, depending on your perspective, a Pluto is just over 3 billion miles from Earth. So you might remember that in 2006, the fastest spacecraft ever was launched. It was called New Horizon, and it travels continually approximately 1 million miles every day. Did you hear that? 1 million miles every day. At a million miles per day, it took New Horizon nine and a half years to get from here to Pluto. Oh, my goodness. Mary Berger, you are my hero. Give it up for Mary, everybody. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Mary. I told some people my goal today was not to pass out. I'm bending my knees, and now I have water. So... Uh, We're good. So nine and a half years at a million miles per day to reach Pluto. So, you know, in retrospect, the Soviet cosmonaut's conclusion seems a little bit silly, perhaps. He spent 89 minutes exploring a tiny corner of the universe. Should we expect that he would see God in that tiny corner? But how many of you have thought to yourself, maybe especially recently, I have looked and I have looked and I do not see God. I have listened, and I have listened, and I do not hear God's voice. How many of you can relate to the cosmonaut's experience? Dr. Krish Kendaya writes in his book, Paradoxology, the book from which I am ripping off most of these ideas. Give him credit. Dr. Krish Kendaya, uh, he writes that perhaps you have found that finding God is difficult, Especially uh, finding God is difficult maybe in the drudgery of domestic work or the loneliness of leadership responsibilities or the sting of suffering or even the darkness of doubt. Where is God? 
Has that question haunted you? Why does God seem like he's so far away? Why is God so difficult to locate sometimes? Well, over the next four weeks, I'm inviting you to wrestle with some of these difficult questions. You know this saying that the more you know, the more you know you don't know. And I think that our experience as Christians, if we are intellectually honest, is, resonates with that reality. The more that we know, the more that we know we don't know. The, the more that we know God, the more that we realize there's more of God that we do not know. In fact, sometimes the longer we have been Christians, the more questions and sometimes the more doubts and sometimes the more struggles we have. It turns out that we are, as believers, not exempt from difficult questions or struggles or doubts. And the good news is that you and I are in good company, if you can relate to that. Because some of the greatest biblical heroes have asked these kinds of very difficult questions. Moses asked, where are you, God? David demanded, why, God? Habakkuk complained, really, God? Job debated, does God really care? Paradoxes, mysteries, conundrums, they are all dared to be brought out into the open to God himself. This is what so many of the biblical heroes did. They brought these difficult questions, these mysteries, these paradoxes, these conundrums out into the open and asked God to deal with them. And you know what they discovered when they asked God these difficult questions? They discovered that God is big enough that God is mature enough to handle these difficult questions. I think that sometimes we have settled for neatly packaged answers, and neatly packaged answers very often do not serve us well. We have settled for explanations that can be systematically organized because we like to systematically organize stuff. But what if God can't be neatly packaged? What if God defies our attempts to systematize him or to organize him? We sweat at the difficult questions that reading our Bibles raise. If you are reading the Bible with us through the whole way in 2020, then you probably have sweated quite a bit this year as you have come across apparent contradictions or unanswered mysteries in the pages of your Bible. But what if, here's the question, what if, in these most difficult sections of Scripture, what if it's right there that God is revealed most clearly to us? What if the mysterious character of God is revealed to us most clearly in the midst of the most difficult paradoxes of our faith? Well, in the next few weeks, let's dare to ask those kinds of questions. We heard today this reading from Exodus 3 recounts Moses' first encounter with the living God. It's an encounter at a burning bush. That's strange. Moses experiences at a burning bush that does not burn up. He experiences the presence of God and also the distance of God. Did you catch that? God calls Moses to the burning bush. Right? God intentionally gets Moses' attention, calling out his name, Moses, Moses. It seems quite clear that God wants Moses to come closer. God wants to make himself close to Moses. God wants to draw close, draw near to Moses, and so Moses does. But then the voice from the burning bush says, come no closer. Stop right there. Wait a minute. 
And if you're like me, you might be confused at this point. Wait a minute, God, didn't you just call Moses over and now you're telling him to don't get too close? God, do you want to be near Moses or not? In that moment, God ex- Moses rather experienced both the nearness and the distance of God. And this would be a theme throughout Moses' life. And when we continue to read the biblical narrative, we read that the Lord calls and commissions Moses to be uh, his kind of point man to lead God's people out of captivity in Egypt. So Moses does so successfully, and then he leads God's people through the wilderness and to Mount Sinai, the very place of the burning bush incident. But at Mount Sinai, the people are warned not to approach. Don't go up the mountain. Stay at the base of the mountain. Don't approach the presence of God. So here it is again, the paradox of God's presence and distance. Again, God had gone through all the trouble to liberate the Israelites from captivity in Egypt. He had gone through all the trouble to lead them through the Sinai desert and over to Mount Sinai. But now, once at the mountain, God refuses to allow the people into his presence. What is going on? Is God close or not? Later, God instructs his people to build him a tabernacle. It's a kind of mobile temple where God's presence will be manifested. And the tabernacle was set up outside of Israel's camp. But the whole point of the tabernacle was that God had promised to dwell among his people, among his people. Did he mean to dwell outside the camp of his people? Because I don't know about you, but to me, outside doesn't seem very much like among God, are you among the people or are you outside the boundaries of the people? At the center of this tabernacle was a special place. It was called the Holy of Holies. It was this room where the Ark of the Covenant was housed. It was a gold-plated acacia wood box. It contained the stone tablets upon which the Ten Commandments were etched. This is the place where God said he would manifest his presence. And nobody was ever permitted to enter into this place where it is said that God dwelled. Except for one guy, the high priest, one day a year on the Day of Atonement. So here we have it again. The tabernacle is a year-round visible reminder of God's presence among the people. It symbolized God's presence with them, and yet the people were never allowed to enter the actual presence of God in the Holy of Holies. Do you see the paradox? And it leads us to ask a question, God, where are you? Where is God? The Soviet cosmonaut didn't see God in space. The people of God weren't permitted to look into God's presence in the Holy of Holies. And Moses wasn't able to look real closely into the presence of God at the burning bush. So where is God? Where is he? Is he in the burning bush? Is he in the Holy of Holies? Is he in outer space? Where are you, God? God, why do you seem so far away? Do you resonate with that question? Here's where I want to introduce you to two terms from the 19th century that have helped people understand this paradox of the whereabouts of God. Two terms that I hope will help you understand the whereabouts 
of God. And these two terms are transcendence and imminence. You can use those to impress your friends with transcendence and imminence. So to speak about God's transcendence is to say that God is distinct from us. God is transcendent above all of creation. God is entirely other. He's separate from us. On the other hand, to speak of God's imminence is to say that God is close by. God is available to us. He is near. God is both transcendent and also imminent. He is both distinct from us, but also available to us. And it's in this mystery or this paradox of God's character that we sometimes have questions or struggle with. So I want to talk a little bit about what happens when we don't allow for that paradox of God's transcendence and imminence. When we get too uncomfortable with the nuance of a God who doesn't fit within our own desires to make things more certain. God, are you distant or are you near? Which one is it? Because it can't be both. That's what our minds tend to gravitate towards and what we want God to do for us. God, tell me, what, which are you? Are you far away or are you nearby? The th- at least three things happen to us when we emphasize one over the other. At least three things happen when we emphasize God's nearness at the expense of his distinctness. Okay? When we say God is near and available and present, and we emphasize that to such an extent that we lose track of the fact that God is transcendent above and beyond us. He is bigger than all we can ask or even imagine of who God could, what God could be like. Three things can happen to us. First of all, we can confuse creation with the creator. Secondly, we over-sentimentalize God. And thirdly, we become disenfranchised with God. So let me just walk through these three dangers. First of all, we confuse creation with the creator. You see, if God is everywhere all the time, if God is all around us all of the time, and we lose track of his distinctness or his transcendence, then we can end up worshiping the everywhere rather than the God who is everywhere. Right? So let's get a little bit more concrete with this. If God is in the beauty of the high Sierras. And I would be the first one to stand up and say God's glory is absolutely revealed in the majesty of the high Sierra mountains. Amen? But if God is in the beauty of the Sierra mountains, and if we overemphasize this, then that can lead us to end up worshiping the mountains rather than the creator of the mountains. This is called pantheism, another word you can impress your friends with. Pan means all, theos is God. Pantheism is the belief that God is in all things. God is everywhere. All things are God. These patio pavers are part of God. But, of course, this is not what the Bible teaches. See, when we focus too much at God's presence at the expense of God's distance, we can end up worshiping the creation rather than the creator. The second thing that can happen when we do that is, is we can end up over-sentimentalizing God. Have you, heard, um, have you heard this saying that, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend or Jesus is my girlfriend, if you prefer that? This is what uh, we're getting at when we talk about over-sentimentalizing God. God becomes too familiar to us. He becomes my boyfriend, my girlfriend. He's too familiar 
to us. How many of you are familiar with this quiz or this game uh, called Love Song or Worship Song? When, uh, when you read some lyrics in a song and then you have to guess, is this song a love song like you might hear on, uh, on your Pandora mix? Or is this a worship song about God? You know, so you read some lyrics and you ask the question, love song or worship song? Just curious, how many of you have played this game before or know about this? Okay, amazing. This is going to be your first time ever playing this game. You ready? I'm going to read you some lyrics. And then you are going to tell me, are those lyrics a part of a love song, like a, like a pop song about love that you would hear on the radio? Or are those lyrics from a worship song that we might sing in church? All right, so you're just going to shout it out, and we're going to see how we do in this, little, in this little quiz. Here we go. I think I love you, but I want to know for sure. Come on, hold me tight. I love you. Love song or worship song? Love song. Okay, one for one. Nice work. That's called Wild Things by the Trogs. You know, Wild Things. You make my heart sing. Yeah, okay. Okay, how about this one? Capture my heart again. Your love is extravagant. Your friendship, it is intimate. Love song or worship song? Worship song. Wow, you, you're really good at this. You're right. Worship song. It's called Your Love is Extravagant by Casting Crowns. Okay, here's a good one. A sloppy wet kiss and my heart turns violently inside of my chest. Love song or worship song? You guys have played this before. That's right. Sounds like a love song. It's actually a worship song. That's How He Loves by David Crowder. Here's another one. Lay back against you and breathe your heart. Uh, hear your heartbeat. This love is so deep. It's more than I can stand. Worship song or love song? Oh, man, that's a worship song. The More I Seek You by Carrie Joby, right? Okay, here's another one. I can feel you breathe. It's washing over me. Suddenly I'm melting into you. Love song or worship song? Wow, nice work, Jim. Faith Hill, love song. It's called Breathe. Okay, we're going all the way, and the wonder of it all is that I'm living just to fall more in love with you. Worship song or love song? Yeah, you're kind of divided. That's a worship song, Deeper by Delirious. Okay, last one. Your voice is warm and tender, a love that I could not forsake. Love song or worship song? My worship song, really, I'm so surprised you don't recognize that Celine Dion. Love song. Okay, so you get the point, right? When we overemphasize God's nearness to us at the expense of God's transcendence or distinctness, then ultimately what we do is we make Jesus into someone like our boyfriend or like our girlfriend. We over-sentimentalize God. The third thing that can happen when we do that is we can end up disenfranchised. Here's what I mean by that. If we lose track of God's holy otherness, we begin to make God into our own personal administrative assistant. If God is always merely available to me, attentive to my needs, then he becomes functionally a personal therapist or an administrative assistant. When God doesn't do what I tell him to do, when he fails to soothe my pain, then naturally I become disappointed with him because it turns out God is not a very good therapist, nor is he a very good secretary. Right? So when we, over or when we uh, become too familiar with God's presence at the expense of his utter otherness, we turn God into functionally what is a... Cosm uh, what is a um, Oh, I lost the word right there. 
you know what? It's gone. I'm not about to pass out, I promise. I feel fine. Uh, anyway, here's the point. When we turn God into our personal secretary or our personal therapist, we shrink God down into a box into which he does not fit. And when he does not fit into that, books, uh, into that box, we end up disappointed. And when we're disappointed in how God doesn't live up to our expectations, we become disillusioned. And when we become disillusioned, we end up disenfranchised. And then we give up on God because clearly he's not the kind of God that we thought he was. And isn't that interesting that when we worship a God who is too close to us, we are ultimately disappointed. We can also go the other way. We can also overemphasize God's transcendence, God's distinctness at the expense of his imminence or his nearness. In other words, we highlight God's otherness and we forget that he is near. And when we do this, at least two things can happen. Our prayer life becomes stagnant and we live this secular, secular, sacred, divided life. If God is so distinct from creation, if he's so transcendent that he's not actually available, then he's no longer involved in the world. And we become practical deists. We, We have made God into a clockmaker who built the clock. He wound up the clock, but then he walked away and let it keep its own time. And if God isn't involved with you, If God isn't involved with your life, then there's no use praying to him or asking him anything, unless you think praying will just make you a better person, which it probably will, but that's kind of shallow. So our prayer life ends up stagnating because we don't believe that God is actually involved. Doing this is like asking, it's like me calling up the manufacturers of my Subaru and asking them, to help me become a better driver. They're not involved. They're not involved in that. You know, the deal was done. They sold the car. It's mine now. They walked away. They don't ever want to hear from me again. And when we overemphasize the transcendence of God and we lose track of the nearness of God, then God becomes kind of like the Subaru dealership. I'm sorry if you work at a Subaru dealership. It's nothing against Subarus. The Toyota dealership, whatever. The car dealership. There we go. The car dealership. Sorry if you work at a car dealership. I'm not criticizing car dealerships. Undervaluing God's imminence can also lead to a kind of divided existence or a bifurcated existence. Here's what I mean. When we see no connection between what we think is the secular part of our lives and what we think is the sacred part of our lives. Now, if I had more time, I would talk a lot more about how that divide between secular and sacred doesn't exist. I would argue there is no such thing as the secular world. Everything is sacred because everything has been created and given by God. It's all sacred. But that's a different sermon. But if we believe falsely, if we believe that God is distant, but he's not close, then we end up believing that, well, God doesn't have anything to do with my life. God doesn't have anything to do with my work. God doesn't have anything to do with my recreation. God doesn't have anything to do with my family or my relationships or my chores. Sunday doesn't have anything to do with Monday because God is not involved on Mondays. Worship has no impact on our work. The Bible has nothing to say to my business. Your faith and your life become disconnected. 
This is one of the dangers when we believe that God is distant, but he's not close. He's just disinvolved. So what do we do? What do we do about all of this? I think when we allow space in our minds and in our hearts and in our faith for the paradox of a God who is both far away and near, when we allow space for the mysterious transcendence and imminence of God to both be true at the same time, when we allow room for nuance and mystery, then we just may discover that it's in, in that mystery that God reveals himself to us most clearly. So what do we do? How do we enjoy God's nearness without shrinking God into a personal therapist or a secretary? Or how can we enjoy God's nearness when, when God seems so far away? When you find yourself asking the question, God, where are you? Well, I think three S words can help us here. I'm not going to use the first S word you just thought of. The three S words that I think can help us here are sin, Sabbath, and sing. Sin, Sabbath, and sing. Just briefly, let me talk about these. The first S word is sin. Today we're asking this question, why does God seem so far away? Another way to phrase that question is, God, where are you? The first time that question was asked in the biblical story, it was asked by God himself when he was looking for Adam and Eve in the garden. God was walking in the midst of the garden and asking the question, where are you? Adam and Eve were actually hiding from God, and they were hiding as a result of their sin. It turns out their choice to pursue independence from God was kind of working. And it was their sin that created the distance between them and God as they hid from God. And you know, it's no different for you and me today. Our sin creates a kind of distance between us and the Lord the Lord comes graciously searching for us. Where are you? Where are you? God is looking for us. He's passionately pursuing us. Where are you? But too often we send his messages to the junk mail folder. Right? We label them as uh, uh, not yet read, and we'll get back to them later. Do you ever do that with email? You read a message and you go, oh, I'm going to get to that later. So you mark it not yet read, but you're never going to get around to actually reading them. Eventually, God's voice gets automatically forwarded to the junk mail folder because you've sent it there so many times before, and we find ourselves sometimes asking, God, where are you? And all the while, our junk mail folder is filled with messages from God asking, where are you? I've been looking for you. I'm searching for you. I'm pursuing you. It was the sin of Adam and Eve that created distance between them and God. And it's the same for us. And so we must ask ourselves, have we been pursuing independence from God? Have we been intentionally or unintentionally distancing ourselves from God, hiding from God? Is there sin in our own life that drowns out God's voice so that we can't hear him anymore? We must ask along with the psalmist from Psalm 139, we must ask, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. We must do as the author of Hebrews urges us to do, which is lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. 
So sin is the first S word. The second S word is Sabbath. Brief story for you. Last week I was on the phone with my mentor, one of my mentors, Reverend Dr. Elizabeth Archer Klein. We call her Eek because that's her initials. We were on a walking phone date together, and she was, um, I was sharing with her some struggles and hopes that I have, as I sometimes do. And in her infinite wisdom, well, it seems infinite sometimes, she said, okay, Peter, I want you to do a few things for me in the next five minutes. You ready? She said, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to slow down your pace 50%. She could hear the gravel underneath my feet, and she could tell that I was trying to kill two birds with one stone. I was going to talk with my mentor, and I was going to get a workout at the same time. And she said, slow down 50%. Then she began, she invited me to begin looking. She said, look around. What do you see? Look to your left. Look to your right. What do you see? Identify 25 things right now that you notice. That sounds like a silly question, but you know what? Before she asked me that question, I didn't notice anything. I saw nothing. And when she said, name 25 things, I thought, yeah, right, no way. Turns out it's super easy. She did the same thing with my hearing, with my sense of smell, with my sense of touch. And what she did was she led me to become aware of what was going on around me. And then that led me to become more aware of what was going on in my mind and in my heart. And what my brilliant mentor did was slow me down enough to pay attention. And this is exactly what Sabbath is. Sabbath is an intentional slowing so that we can pay attention to what God is doing. An intentional slowing down so that we can pay attention to what God is doing. You might need to intentionally slow down. You know, one day a week would be ideal for that. That's the way that God created the universe. But maybe you need to start with just 15 minutes a day. What would it look like to slow down? for 15 minutes every day, or maybe one morning a week, slow down. As Dallas Willard has said, we need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Do you need to give yourself time and space to experience the transcendent imminence of our living God? To read some of those emails that he's been sending you all along? Sabbath. The third S word is sing. What I really want to say is worship, but worship doesn't start with an S, so we'll have to stick with sing, sing. We got to sing. We got to sing a lot. We got to sing not love songs. I mean, those are fun too, but we got to sing worship songs. We got to sing to the Lord. We got to bow our hearts before the Lord. We got to worship because you and I were created to worship. And it turns out that when we worship the living God, he reveals himself to us, especially when we worship together. And you know, this is one of the many promises in the scripture that comes directly from Jesus himself. Do you remember when he says it? Whenever two or more of you are gathered in my name, let's see, two or more, check. Gathered in his name, check. Jesus says, I will be there with you. God is present with us. Present when we worship. Present when we sing to him. Present when we give thanks to him wherever two or more are gathered. So finally, let's make no mistake about why the Lord revealed himself to Moses in a flame. The movement of the flame and its bright colors drew Moses' attention. Do you ever find yourself staring into a fire? It's beautiful. But the heat from the flame prevented Moses from getting too close. Fire is a symbol of purity in the Bible. And the moral purity of a perfect God draws us to himself like the brilliance of a flame and a fire. We're drawn to it. 
But God's holiness and our sinfulness separate us, right? Like the burning heat of a flame. So Dr. Kandaya remarks, we would survive the white-hot radiance of God's moral perfection no longer than an ice cube on the surface of the sun. It's for our protection that God keeps his distance, but it is for our salvation that God comes close. Let me say that again. It is for our protection that God keeps his distance, but it is for our salvation that God comes close. And the Lord coming close to us in Jesus required that Jesus experience distance from God the Father. Do you remember when Jesus cried out on the cross? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me paraphrase that. God, where are you? God, why do you seem so far away? And when Jesus took upon himself the world's sin, the white, hot, purity of God's perfection and holiness drove Jesus away. And in that moment, when Jesus was driven to a distance from God the Father, the massive curtain in the permanent tabernacle was torn in two from top to bottom. That massive curtain that hung as a way to separate the people from the holy of holies, from God's presence, that separation was torn, removed from top to bottom. Because in Jesus' death, Jesus dealt the death blow of our distance from God. Let me say that a lot. Again, that's a lot of Ds. In Jesus' death, he dealt a death blow to our distance from God. So now when we search for God, we can find him in the person of Jesus. And one day, one day, we will see him face to face. And until that day, you and I are invited to live with the mystery of a God who is far grander than we could even ask or imagine in our own minds. He's far bigger, far more distant, far more other, far more separate than we can even imagine. And also God is closer than anyone or anything else. That God is present and available to us like nobody else is. We are invited to live into and celebrate that paradox, that mystery of God's character. That he is big enough to be other. And he is loving enough to be near in the person of Jesus. Friends, let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you that you are a good God. Thank you that you are bigger than even our imaginations can conjure up. Thank you that you are holier, more perfect than even our imaginations can conjure up. And thank you, God, that you have come closer in Jesus than we can even imagine. Thank you that you are closer to us through the presence of your Spirit than anyone else. God, I pray for us that we would hold in this mysterious and lovely tension this this reality of who you are and what you're like, that you are so close yet distinct, that you are the transcendent God of the universe come close and imminent. 
Jesus, we love you because that's who you are. Continue to cultivate our love for you as we lift up your name, as we open up our sails to your wind, as we enjoy your presence. Bless us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining our Christ Pacific Sunday Sermon Podcast. To hear more of our sermons, or to subscribe, or to learn how you can be engaged with what we're up to in Huntington Beach, please visit us at cpchb.org.